Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Next up is my conversation with poet, translator, editor, and now novelist Anna Moskovakis about her new book from Coffeehouse Press, Eleanor or The Rejection of the Progress of Love. I'll be adding Anna's collaboration with Algerian poet and translator Samira Negrouche to the bonus audio archive at patreon.com slash between the covers. There you can find the different ways to support the show. Grab yourself a copy of one of the last few out-of-print Jesse Ball books, Vera and Linus, or a copy of Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing. Again, that is patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, translator, and editor Anna Moskovakis. Moskovakis studied philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley, received an MFA in creative writing at Bard, and an MA in comparative literature at the City University of New York. Moskovakis is a longtime member of the Brooklyn-based publishing collective Ugly Duckling Press, she has served as editor, designer, administrator, and printer. She's co-founder of Bushel, a collectively run community space dedicated to art, agriculture, and action, and a teacher in the MFA programs at both the Pratt Institute and Bard College. Moskovakis's many translations include texts by Henri Michaud, Samira Negrouche, Marcel Proust, Pierre Alfari, as well as the books Bresson on Bresson by Robert Bresson, The Jokers by Albert Cossery, The Possession by Annie Ernaud, and The Engagement by Georges Simonon. As if that were not enough, Anna Moskovakis is also a poet and writer. Her debut poetry collection, I Have Not Been Able to Get Through to Everyone, was a finalist for the Norma Farber First Book Award and selected for the Poetry Society of America's New American Poetry Series. Her second book, You and Three Others Are Approaching a Lake, was the 2011 winner of the James Laughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets, 
and her collection, They and We Will Get Into Trouble for This, was picked as a best book of 2016 by The New Yorker, Entropy, and Bomb. Ben Lerner calls Anna Moskovakis a great abstract poet, an indispensable one, and Vicky now considers her the greatest living poet of our generation. But Anna Moskovakis is here today to talk about something else entirely, a novel, her first out from Coffee House Press and entitled Eleanor or The Rejection of the Progress of Love. Kirkus in its starred review calls Eleanor or The Rejection of the Progress of Love philosophically exhaustive yet profoundly human, a book that sets itself the task of asking the big questions, what am I, what was I, what will I be, in a style that evokes Lispector and Camus, but with the self-referential and weary globalism of the current milieu, a consummately accomplished novel, a worthy treatise on the now. Alexandra Kleeman adds, I don't know if I've ever read a book that captures so deftly what it's like to live at a time of big data and mundane precarity, where connections seem at once incredibly easy to form and incredibly difficult to maintain. With keen insight and probing humor, Anna Moskovakis vitally engages the ecosystem of art, ideas, and narratives that make up the things that we call our lives. Finally, Renee Gladman says, Anna Moskovakis takes the reader straight to the terrifying edge, that moment where one ages out of youthfulness and begins to flutter in the debris of middle living, flattened out by technology, wild goose chasing one's data. Yet the deeper we look into Eleanor's unsettledness, the more we see and the more we hope we find in her rhizomic wandering. This is a beautiful slow burn of a novel. Welcome to Between the Covers novelist Anna Moskovakis. Thank you. It's so good to be here. So you published a piece in in the Paris Review called The Capacity to Be Alone. Uh, It opens with a line that says, I don't like novels. And later you say, I am working through the final copy edits of my novel. My novel are not words that roll comfortably off my tongue. I am a novelist is not something I've ever wanted to say. So given that we're sitting across from each other um, to talk as a novelist uh, about your novel, um, maybe we could just start with what you don't like about the novel form um, and how you found yourself sort of unwittingly a practitioner of it. Um, yeah, that's that's so funny to hear repeated back to me in a certain way, even though, of course, when you start an essay, I don't like novels, people are going to... Um, notice if you just published one. It's not that I don't like the novel form at all. I think it's just that I have um, just really, really particular taste in novels, which is less true of other forms for me, maybe. I mean, I'm particular about all forms, but I I think there's just, um, I think I just have, like, I have a hard time with long novels. I have a hard time with with certain kinds of... um, with with certain kinds of assumptions of of what it takes to describe something, so um, and my ten, my tastes tend to be more international and more. Um, I've read lots of novels in translation, obviously, and I translate novels, and um, and I think that that I just yeah, it's just it's it's a 
it's a kind of, I've always felt a little guilty that I'm not more open-minded about contemporary novels in particular. So I think the idea of, it's not that I've not been interested in writing fiction. I've always, always written fiction a little bit here and there, and I've always kind of blurred the distinctions between prose and poetry and essay and everything else. Um, but it's just that like sort of the, the world of contemporary U.S. American fiction has always, I've always kept it a little bit, um, a little bit separate and felt a little conflicted and and maybe maybe a little guilty about that, um, given that that everyone who's writing in any genre is working really hard. And <laughs> well, you mentioned a couple, well, quite a few novels mm-hmm. in that essay that you actually like, mm-hmm. uh, "The Hour of the Star" by mm-hmm. Liz Spector and Wittgenstein's "Mistress" by David Markson. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost feels like those are examples of poets who happen to be writing novels, in a sense, like it, they're very uh, syntactically engaged. I think it, yeah. I think I mean I think you're, I think syntax and the sen. I think I love the sentence even in some ways more than I love the poetic line. So in that sense, I've always been a prosy poet um, in terms of my writing. I mean, I love uh, poetry that doesn't involve sentences. But um, but yeah, I mean, and and you know, just to be clear, like the novels I love, I love them to death. And it's not like there's five of them. There's many. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think often um, often it has to do with where in the where the psych- where the psychological and embodied space um how it's transmitted and and I feel like there's something that happens in the novels I love the most where there's like a real kind of quote unquote reality to a character or a mind but it's transmitted in the surface of the language as much as in what is being referred to in the language so in that way maybe that would be a poetic or a um a philosophical uh, relation to language more than a indexical one. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. yeah. Well, it made me think of a, a quote by Robert Frost that I wondered if it sort of encapsulated maybe an uneasiness you might have about the novel or about the story. So I want to just read it to you. Sure. Partially because I thought of it because of the ways your novel is interrogating the question of progress. Uh, so Robert Frost said the following. The most exciting movement in nature is not progress, advance, but expansion and contraction, the opening and shutting of the eye, the hand, the heart, the mind. We throw our arms wide with a gesture of religion to the universe. We close them around a person. We explore an adventure for a while, and then we draw in to consolidate our gains. The breathless swing is between subject matter and form. And and thinking of this, I wondered if it's a question of one's relationship to progress or more broadly to time, uh, if it's because the novel generally, or to be stereotypical, Mm. places one in time and maybe in progressive time, whereas poetry can enact this expansion and contraction or or maybe like what Jory Graham calls a dialogue between the song of man and the silences of God. Um, Curious how that strikes you in terms of this this uh, uneasy connection to this uh, this form. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Neither of those, I mean, Frost and Jerry Graham are, are not um, people that I have deep connections to in terms of um, of being able to to relate or interpret uh, or contextualize those those quotes. But um, I think ta- I think there's something about that idea of. Um, I often use the metaphor of pulling back a lens and then going back in quickly um, to sort of spa- spatially visualize um, 
uh, movement in a way that's not linear. Um, and, you know, what I think about mostly when you bring this up is a conversation I had with Renee Gladman, who's a good friend also, um, about because her her prose is fiction um, and also her way of writing is very much the way I think um, – Anyway, the way I write poetry and fiction, and we had this long conversation about sort of the difference between um, thinking through the sentences and um, versus descri- versus like setting a scene and kind of like, I mean, she was saying she has a really hard time figuring out like how to get from the cafe to the to the park or whatever, you know, like these things, like these kinds of ideas that like, um, oh right, like so there there has to be a, a movement between ten a.m. and two p.m. Um, and even if it's not described, even even if there's a cut, like that, that that's a conventional cut in time, like in a movie or something, versus some other less um, less like kind of uh, tethered um, movement. And so, yeah, I I think in some ways one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest like differences for me in writing this novel. In a lot of ways, I wrote it very similarly to how I write poetry in the sense that. Um, anything, any thoughts that that were that came in, or any experiences that came in to my my own experience and life um, could find their way in there somehow. So it wasn't like I'd figured out where it was going to go, and then I was like, you know, writing these scenes. But there are scenes, like there are scenes that take place in time, <laughs> and and that um, and so that sort of the role of the imagination when you are the the connection between the imagination and and time when you're talking about a scene that can be visualized and that even in some small way um, could be staged is different from the staging of thinking that happens in in the poetry somehow it's related but different right yeah so I don't know if that at all addresses what what you're talking no, about. No, it, it it does, and I I wanted to. You talked about how you view it as not the expansion contraction like Frost says, but like a lens. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to ask you something about that mm-hmm. a, around film and and mm-hmm. versus versus literature. Because in that same essay, you say, "What is a story? What is a character?" The novels I love have skeletal stories, characters built from small collections of words, words and facts. And later, you say about a specific novel. We are never forced by lavish description into the role of viewer. We never forget that for us, she is made of language. And this is interesting to me, uh, knowing your interest in film, um, that you want to resist the reader assuming the role of viewer and that you don't want the reader to forget that these these characters are words, um, an assemblage of words. Uh, and you even end a poem of yours with the line, I want to be a word I would be abstract with an inscrutable ending. So I was wondering if you could talk about um, where the desire comes to sort of resist that fictive spell, the the idea that we're just going to disappear and the language is going to sort of disappear as we disappear into the scene. I think I, yeah, that connects a lot of things and I'll see if I can put them together. Um, first of all, that that little section from the essay that you wrote about We Never Forget That She Is Made of Language is about Gwendolyn Brooks's amazing novel, Maud Martha, and um, which uh, which I, everyone should read. Um, and it's, uh, and, I, and I think, and, and it also subliminally or, or under, subtextually relates to The Hour of the Star um, 
in which Lispector really sort of let in the in the role of the narrator character who's a writer is really sort of transparent in in that sneaky transparent way that she has a, um, about building a character from words from a small pile of of facts like the character Maccabea is you know a virgin and a typist and he likes Coca-Cola and there's like a, like three or four things and you sort of and she's and so I'm so on the one hand I those are just the novels I love why do I love them and why do I want other why why do I want to maybe only write things that um or maybe I can only write things that appeal in that particular way, I think has to do with something um, related to psychology. And the essay, The Capacity to be Alone, is is named for uh, an essay by Winnicott. And I just, I think this idea of the transitional object when you're young that you hang on to to sort of um, differentiate, for me, really was language. And I think language as a palpable, um, um, as a, a home or a stopping point. It's not that I believe so much in language. I just, I just, it needs to be near me at all times. I, I, I have like, um, uh, like a security blanket relationship to the materiality of language. So I don't want to make it disappear because I don't want to live in a world where it disappears yeah. <laughs> or is background. I, I sort of can't. Yeah. So it's ple- It's really about pleasure, but that pleasure is also about, um, about a need. Mm-hmm. And so that might appeal to some people and really not to others. <laughs> and do you equate, like I did, this uh, idea of the fictive spell and the role of the reader as viewer? That's interesting. To me, I don't, because I can be completely under a fictive spell. In fact, for me, it's I'm 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 alienated if I feel like I'm being bumped into a viewer role, whereas I'm completely under a spell if I'm if all the all the neurons are firing in my brain, including the ones that are like that are visually taking in the 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 words. And, you know, I'm a typesetter as well. And like even like the font in a book is like part of you know how it's types at the white space on the page. All of that is is really important to my experience of reading. So, so no, there, those would not, those would not be, uh, yeah, I think this, for me, the spell, again, it's just like, it's a different perspective or a different, the lens is, is in a different spot. Um, but, but I can, I can and do fall under that spell and love it. And, um, and actually my, my, if I had a sort of secret goal when I started to take this novel seriously which was many years into sort of fiddling around with it it was that I did want it to be a sort of a page turner like I wanted it to be (laughs) I wanted it to have that that ability but I just figured it might have that only for a few people you know well it does feel like the structure of Eleanor sort of arises from this desire to resist the role of viewer for the reader in the sense that it's very um hard to know from what vantage point we're viewing um there's the two parallel alternating narratives that are nested narratives. So on the one hand, we have Eleanor, a woman who goes on an adventure after her laptop is stolen and the correspondence she's having with the African immigrant who um, says he knows the person who stole her laptop, that is dead ended. And so she goes on this journey. But then the other half of the, um, of the story is the writer who created Eleanor. Uh, and she's, not only um, writing the book that we're reading in the other half, but she's 
additionally having that manuscript critiqued by a film critic. So we have all of these nested narratives. And even when we're in the part where we're just reading about Eleanor, we can't help to think about the writer who's written her and the way the manuscript has been critiqued and whether or not the story has been changed or will be changed because of the feedback that is either pending or has already been implemented. And I guess I wondered um, if this brings us back to, in some respects, to Frost's contractions and expansions in the sense that it's, it's a different way to move in the book than linear time or progression because we can like the lens, we can go in and out into def- different nested orbits of reference or or um, narratives. Yeah, um, the I guess one one thing that that all points to is something that I don't have a good word for, but something like about um, a, like a sandwiching effect of time um, in the book, and I was thinking at the very end only, you know, after I was kind of trying to figure out what I'd done about, um, how there's, you know, there's, there's, there's like what a diegetic time that I always forget these terms in in film, like there's, you know, uh, diegetic sound, sorry. But I was thinking about the, the, I was thinking about like the, the time of the narrative, the time of the fictional writing of the narrative and the time of the actual writing of the fictional writing of the narrative and um, and the implied time of all the drafts that get sort of um, critiqued um, and presumably have been implemented into the or, or not or rejected or whatever. So there's this implied kind of like um, thinking time and, and uh, judgment time and processing time. Um, and then... And then there's also um, the fact that the book takes place fictionally takes place over a year, but all the events in the external world that are that are referred to took place over a series of years, about five years, mm-hmm. which happened happened to coincide with the years that I was writing the book. And um, all of those all of those um, temporal lenses or um, aspects kind of they don't fit together so you just kind of put them all together you smash them together and then and then it just becomes sort of like well I guess that's something I'm interested in (laughs) but I think I think that um the I'm trying to figure out how to say this there's something about the um the the plotting forward motion of conventional time and sort of the body aging, which is one of the subtexts of the thing. Like you kind of can't go backwards on that. Although I think in some ways you can. (laughs) And then there's, and then there's the, um, and then there's the sort of the before and after of when new information or a new idea has been inserted into that progress. And so writing a book is so weird because you write a draft and you think about it and you get thoughts about it, you know, and you get feedback about it and you read something new every day that might relate to it. And then you go back and rewrite it and you insert things that you didn't know when you first wrote it. And that's clearly artificial. You don't get to do that Mm -hmm. in life. And so this was just like an extreme version of that, like adding the critic, which was a second, the whole author thread was added, you know, after I thought I was just writing the Eleanor story um, was a way of sort of acknowledging and, and trying to struggle with like 
the artifice of that. Like some of the some of the criticism is 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 incorporated very transparently, and and but there's many things I just changed as if I, as if I'd had that idea the first time around, right? And but right. they leave traces. So yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Anna Moskovakis about her latest book, Eleanor, or the rejection of the progress of love. So you wrote an artist statement once that starts with the line, my writing begins most often in the experience of discomfort, lack of mastery or failure, and the decision to interrogate it in language. This extends to form and approach as much as to content. And, and in an interview, you say that expecting and accepting mistakes, that being mistaken is key to your politics. So I was hoping you could talk about this approach of expecting and accepting mistakes and the desire to, to sort of bring the, the failure into the language in general, but also maybe in the context of how you came to develop this, this book Mm -hmm. and its structure. I felt and continue to feel super exposed by, um, well, always have by putting writing into the world. Um, and that, that feeling of exposure is connected to the certainty that I'm making mistakes all the time and that those mistakes, once they're in print, can't be retracted and edited in that way that we were just talking about, um, which is possible before you print something. And um, and I sort of beg my... I mean, I, I sort of depend on um, a certain amount of generosity from everyone which I try and also give to people of, um, of the understanding that, that, um, yeah, if you're, if you're not willing to make mistakes, you're not willing to expand your beyond, beyond the set of values and intelligence that you're intelligence, meaning uh, knowledge really that you were given. Um, so ethically, I feel like stumbling is the way forward. And, um, but, Deciding when you're willing to sort of go on the record with your stumbling it has been um, terrifying for me. I'm a pretty shy and self-conscious person in a lot of ways and, and also pretty conflict-averse. Um, so some people like to be controversial and make their mistakes really out loud, but, you know, I, I um, but as somebody don't like who, that. <laughs> but as somebody but, who might not like mm-hmm. that, um, I would imagine someone else mm. who didn't like mistakes would do everything they could to take the mistake, the traces of right. the mistakes out of the language. And yet yeah, you're saying, you I don't like these mistakes. I don't want to make mistakes publicly. And yet I want to bring the mistakes into the, into yeah. the language. It's just the other, it's an, it's another way of dealing with, um, the anxiety of living. Right. Like I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I, the idea, the idea that one could, th- these are just really deep temperamental things, I think, right? Like the idea that one could kind of cleanse any, any part of one's um, public or, or just private um, uh, persona or, or presentation is, is more terrifying to me than, than, the, <laughs> than the idea that you would um, just kind of try to think think as hard as you can and feel as hard as you can and revise as much as you have to continually and be, um, and, and learn to live with, with that kind of exposure. I mean, I've been teaching for a long time and teaching is terrifying, um, in a lot of ways because, um, 
because of the power dynamic that's inherent in it as much as you might try to reduce that. But um, I was always scared that I early on that I didn't know enough, you know, I had total imposter syndrome. And there was a kind of liberation that came with realizing that like I was going to say things in front of a classroom I was going to like immediately blush all over visibly I was going to have to say I'm not sure I believe what I just said everybody let's talk about it you know and just sort of practicing that practicing dwelling in that space um just started to feel like a kind of home an emotional home for me like not a comfortable place but of the options, the place I wanted to live. So I think that um, is related to uh, to putting those things in in print. So when people have talked to you about your background in philosophy, you've often mentioned Wittgenstein giving you permission because of the way he would think about writing in the writing itself. Is that related to this at all? Yeah, I mean, I think very specifically with Wittgenstein, and I didn't really study him in particular uh, with guidance. I sort of read him mostly on my own, um, except for one one book uh, that I was taught in a seminar. But um, I think it's 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 the it is about the talking about the writing, but it's more about it's more about the proposition. I feel the proposition is really, and maybe this goes back to what you're saying, like the the, the proposition is a very strongly, st- or can be a very strongly stated, um, uh, what can sound like an opinion, um, but there's still something propositional about it. Like it can, it's, you know, so it's like you have to say it really strongly in order to then hear it and then think, oh, do I really believe that? Hmm. Actually, no, it's not that. It's it's that almost, but with this other little thing, right? So there's something about the relation to the exposure of saying something really firmly and then knowing that that's actually partly just a, a step on the path to the next version, right, that Wittgenstein does really beautifully and movingly. Um, and uh, I think temperamentally, if if I could meet him, we would find ourselves to be very different from each other in a lot of ways. But um, but that that is a um, that just again, it's like one of these weird things where the anxiety of it was also soothing to me. Like started to feel like home. Like oh, you can do that. You can like be bold and then be bold in in sort of <laughs> revising <laughs> huh. or denying or disagreeing with yourself. Yeah. No, I think one of the most pleasurable parts for me of the book is. Maybe the maybe the primary story is that bold statement, and then we get the the layering of of the film critic Aiden's critique. But the the story pedagogy that gets delivered, and then as we read the narrative, there's a real pleasure in, in sort of holding th- those layers of of perception. But I but I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you about one of his principal critiques, mm-hmm. uh, and that is that there's not enough pressure in the novel. And I love what he says about it in regards to film. So he says that in films, pressure comes not from the telling, but from the troubling the gap between what is desired and what is delivered. And this gap between the desire and what is delivered is called the wreck. And I, I wondered about this gap and what you're doing with this gap in the book. Because in, in a sense, I feel like... Um, if I'm imagining the writer of Eleanor, uh, she's not really taking the advice of of the film critic. 
or hasn't yet taken the advice. That's where the time part becomes very complicated. But I feel like in every, in, in many ways, I feel like whenever there's a chance for uh, the writer of Eleanor to ratchet up the pressure, something happens that relieves it instead. And I don't know if that was um, just my own personal reading or, or, or actually some sort of an enactment that you're doing around that question of pressure. It's funny, that's a line that um, I almost, well, I, I, that I almost took out or like felt really weird about. And the thing about the wreck felt like so strange and I don't really know where, where it came from. Um, but that idea of, of what's desired and what's delivered and troubling the gap between, I guess, I guess in some way was related partly to the, um, to the sort of, you know, put a gun in a book. Like, I mean, there's like, there's like two, what are they called? MacGuffins or red herrings in the book in a way. And one of them is, is the, um, Danny KM, who's the, the possible friend of the thief of the laptop or, um, or possibly the thief. And, uh, um, and then there's the thing that had happened to Eleanor in the past, um, which she's sort of grieving and trying to recover from and whether or not we're going to ever find out what that is. Um, and I think I spend more time troubling that one, a little bit more time troubling that, that one. And, uh, whereas the Danny Cam story, like you say, kind of, there's a lot of false starts in the, in the book. It's kind of episodic in that way or sort of picaresque in the Eleanor version of the Eleanor thread. So I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I'm, I'm just really interested in in your response um, to to that. I guess I feel like maybe I don't, maybe I don't myself understand what the critic was pointing to or what he would want the author of the <laughs> the author yeah. character to do. Maybe I actually don't understand what it would mean to have more pressure in this book or to, I guess maybe yeah, it's really interesting. I could have been overreading and yeah, no, overreading. No. But when I was thinking about the role of the trying to resist the role of the reader as viewer, uh, and here we're getting a critique weirdly from a film critic yeah. about a novel that yeah. made me wonder if the rejection of the uh, advice from the film uh, critic about pressure was sort of a resistance against a, a cinematic form of storytelling, which seems very, um, popular in prose maybe in the last 50 years to yeah totally could be I mean a lot of those are um it's funny because there's so many I've been thinking about this a lot about the well the philosophical term the straw man you know like how we sort of like we're resisting something that may not actually be the uh, uh, or you know like or or how like often the outlines of whatever it is that we're resisting are are pretty rudimentary and um and sometimes we're wasting our time uh like kind of knocking down something that's not very specific after all um or maybe that isn't really in our way and so i think you know the the kind of conventions of the realist novel or a cinematic novel or things like that um that i think i'm probably a, a little bit guilty of of needing to define what I was doing a little bit against some kind of vague idea of what a novel is supposed to do, which is super received and not very well thought through and kind of very generic and probably a straw man. And, um, 
And it's not like that was my impulse, but it's just like at any moment I, I might be like, right, I'm not going to go there or do that or like flesh out this scene in this particular way or even like yeah. even like really just really like have the dialogue be a full conversation. One aspect of the book that it, that's one of its main preoccupations that I also think runs through your poetry is this question of technology in relationship to intimacy and authenticity. But before we can talk about it, about technology in the book, I feel like we sort of need to talk about progress in relationship to the history of philosophy. So there is a book that Eleanor encounters twice in the novel, or to put it another way, in your book where a writer writes another book, inside that other book there is another book that occurs twice, and that book is called The Idea of Progress Since the Renaissance. Uh, And I was hoping you would talk to us uh, both the uh, uppercase and lowercase uh, idea about your ideas of of progress since the Renaissance, um, and then any other ways in which you feel like um, your own orientation to the idea of progress, philosophically speaking, is is enacting things in 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 Eleanor. I don't know that I can actually intelligently respond to that, to be totally honest. Um, I have, but I will say this because, um, in the spirit of transparency and revelation uh, that we were talking about before, those kinds of questions about the, like the minute you say the history of philosophy, I just clam up. <laughs> I and, saw something go across yeah, your face. Yeah, and it's, and it's related to, um, it's very much related to the relationship between the author character and the critic. It's about gender. It's about mapping. It's about sort of um, the difference between having a bird's eye view of history with a capital H and um, which events end up on on that map um, versus a phenomenological kind of moving, you know, a subjective um, mapping. Even geographically, I'm I, I have no I have no sense of orientation from the bird's eye way, and I have really particular orientation from the the sort of um, subjective uh, walking view. And so I, yeah, so so I don't have, there's certain kinds of opinions I don't have and certain kinds of takes I don't have. And and that resistance was formed very much by studying philosophy and being marginalized, you know, just as as a woman. I mean, I'm a white woman. I'm not anywhere near the most marginalized um, person. group in this country. Um, but women at that time in that department that I was in, as much as I really loved sort of being there, um, I was, I almost feel gifted with, with, um, the sense that I was not ever going to be in that timeline, that that timeline excluded me. And so I really wasn't that interested in kind of having an opinion about it or a take on it. Um, and I'm always really, and that also relates to the whole, um, the whole, you know, uh, imposter syndrome, like certain kinds of teaching that I've had to do where, uh, I don't do this kind of teaching anymore, but, but, um, when I was in graduate school, um, I taught sort of great books classes, you know, to undergrads at Queens college. And I mean, just the kind of studying I had to do in order to just get up there and sort of like with any kind of pretense of authority even just like just like get the timeline right about periodization and then it was so clear that I didn't really think that was the most important thing to talk about you know so yeah I just kind of I don't really I can't tell you what I think about 
progress and the history of philosophy at all. Well, it's funny because... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's totally fair. I I got an undergraduate degree in philosophy, too. And as a naive 18-year-old, I was shocked that it was all white men that we were learning. I was like, wait a minute. I thought a philosophy class would include philosophy in India and in Peru and, and not knowing at the time that, um, that's all shunted into religious studies, even though almost all the philosophers in the philosophy department are also grappling with the same religious questions. They're just not seen as religious in the same way. And even in cases where they were specifically influenced by, by philosophy from other places, it gets, it gets sidelined or did at the time. This was 20 years ago. Yeah. Can, can you talk about the appearance of that book twice? There, oh, there yeah, must be a reason yeah, why, yeah. even if you don't want to go into the content <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. book. Um, well, so for me, books are often important, um, just as important for their um, kind of material being and presence as for what's in them. So, I mean, I that is a book that I found at a at a at a used bookstore I often pick up books for their titles um, and I often write from the titles of books sometimes without really reading the books that much usually those kinds of books that I'm that I've found that I wasn't looking for that I don't have any particular relation to the to the writer um, or or the where I don't have a context I sort of can take them out of context but then their context becomes what made this person pick up this book and then really like what's on the cover of it? What does the spine look like? Where does it sit on the bookshelf? What's it next to? What's it, you know, what happens if it sits on your desk for a really long time and you don't ever look inside it, but the title is just kind of always there in your peripheral vision, you know? So, um, so they become sort of totemic. And one of my books of poetry was, was written based on four of these kinds of books that just sort of hung around and had great titles and, um, and that I sort of dipped into for content. But I mean, it's a very irresponsible way of, of using books on the one hand. And on the other hand, I feel like often books that I acquire in those ways become really important in the more full kind of content way later when I need them. So that book appeared twice. I mean, partly because um, you can do that in a novel. You can have You can have a totally kind of I'm sure the book's not random to the person who wrote it or, or, you know, and maybe it's not to scholars of, of progress and modernity, but, um, but to me it was sort of an accidental acquisition and, um, and then I decided to let it be an accidental acquisition for Eleanor and then, um, and then really just because of the title and because of the ideas that the, that the title sparked in Eleanor in the first appearance, um, I wanted, I wanted to, Maybe it's partly to do with that collapsing you were talking about, like, like she picks it up in in her boyfriend's bathroom early in the in the novel and kind of reads enough to, like, get an idea that that like there's this connection between sort of Christianity and progress. (laughs) And she has a reaction to that. And then, like, she encounters it much later in a totally different context. And um and there's a natural desire then, I think, when when something, some coincidence like that happens to sort of compare and be like, oh, 
am I different this time that I'm encountering this thing than I was last? You know, like, yeah. so maybe maybe the fact that it's a book about ostensibly about project progress and that it also triggers this question, like, has anything changed in between the first and second encounters of the book? Maybe that's just a very small kind of yeah. uh, gesture toward Well, it sent me question. down a rabbit hole. Did maybe it? The wrong, oh, tell me. Maybe the wrong rabbit <laughs> I hole. I want to know. I want to know. <laughs> but I, I'm just going to share. Please. Spe- specifically, <laughs> since you talked about mapping and bird's eye yeah, views yeah. because it sent me to Francis Bacon and the invention of the compass. Oh, wow. So he used the invention of the compass, an invention that massively changed the world yeah. uh, through uh, expanding the horizon of navigation and ship- shipbuilding. He used this as an example, not just of progress, but of the idea of progress. And that's why the Enlightenment philosophers, apparently, several centuries later, loved him because of um, him talking not just about technical progress, but the idea of progress, uh, that these inventions would lead to greater human happiness, justice, societies that could be ordered to produce more inventions that would produce more justice and more happiness. And Bacon says, the humble and anonymous invention of the compass did more to advance the human race than all the contemplative philosophy of the ancients who prided themselves on respecting theory over mere practice. Mm. And I, I, I guess the, the way that I connected it to the book, and probably I'm totally off base, but um, when we're thinking about an interrogation of progress or maybe interrogation of time in a conventional novel, uh, he's condemning the sense of returning to the past to find wisdom. So he's, it's like this small thing is done more in this one moment in time than everything that's been done before it and we look f- towards the horizon and um anything new as purportedly is going to be something potentially beneficial towards making us yeah. better as humans yeah. um i don't know like it felt like the whole way your your uh novel loops back and is repetitive and is nested seems to resist the possibility of even dreaming of that. Totally. Um, no, absolutely. And I think it is really germane. And I'm just trying to keep all the thoughts in my head. And I think, you know, the to go back to like, you know, this is all sort of well-worn, but the, the, more, the more that's erased in a history, the more important it is in order to move forward to go back and recuperate and rewrite and, and, and resist um, those erasures and those, and those, you know, violences. So, so to me, it's always very clear that to move forward even a tiny bit, one has to go back. Um, but where does one go back and with what lens? That's what matters, right? Going yeah. back and sort of re-ins- re-inscribing, um, re-inscribing the same, the same uh, trajectories is, is, is just worse, right? So that's one piece of it where I think that that looping back does, does, does feel like it is a way of moving forward, but just very slowly. I mean, there's a lot of like some of the ways I think about this book are that it's, it is about, maybe this goes to your sense of it, of it kind of stalling before making any big, uh, big pressureful moves, but that it is about like the infinitesimal uh, movements that equal personal growth, like they're tiny. <laughs> and so there's all these, or they can be, I mean, I even, I think even, I think even when they seem dramatic, it's, it's often, um, those are maybe not, I don't know. I, I just, I don't trust, I don't trust necessarily the sensation of like big life changing, 
um, revelations or whatever. But like, you know, in the book, there's a lot of like description of very tiny physical things like like the, this little sensation that moved an inch to the left and her like right well, abdomen be, or something. Yeah. Right? To be fair, there's lots of drama, too. Oh, also, yeah. She goes to Ethiopia. <laughs> she goes to a commune. Well, she goes to a lot of places. Yeah. yeah but the, but there is a kind of lack of drama in those encounters. But anyway, but um, but the other thing I was going to say now did it fly out of my head was um, about bacon oh technology just that um i mean this is this is such something that's been present in my in my immediate present because i just was writing a, a grant application with um with a collaborator named claire donato who's a wonderful writer and we co-taught we were recruited to co-teach a class last semester with lots of other campuses at um in new york city a, a class for which we were completely ill-prepared um called technology media democracy and um and it was and the grant application is because we want to write an opera about it called hackathon the opera because (laughs) because the the all of these this idea you know this idea that like basically it was just a class with all these all these different kinds of um grad schools coming together and some very practice-based like people who actually design apps and try and sell them and then some media studies people and some journalists and we were in the creative writing department um, with our students who were all amazing but um and very suspicious (laughs) of of exactly what you're saying and and it was really strange to encounter up close a version of that idea right that like well, this, you know, this new technology that's going to, for instance, um, show us how to filter the comments on a website so that you can decide how offended you want to be. Like, this is going to actually sort of solve something, you know, and and all of the holes in that that were so obvious to us being language people were not obvious to some of the other people. They were sort of like, but but clearly it's better than not having this tool, right? Like right. The, that sense. Um and and yeah, there's a there's a a real there's a fun it's a funny gesture for people who I think might I mean, you know, it's funny. I think about the term progressive politically and the term radical and how like one is about going forward and the other one's about going backward. Mm-hmm. And you kind of need both of those um, impulses in order to um, to sort of. Well, I mean, often those impulses go together in that particular way, you know, um, yeah. whereas the, the purely sort of charging forward thing is actually um, n- not neither progressive nor radical most of the time. <laughs> yeah, like when I when I return to the prologue, so the prologue of the book, I feel like I feel like there's an enormous amount of significance to the prologue of, of Eleanor. And yet when we encounter it the first time, we can't really know that. It, and so it, it was kind of almost shocking to return to the prologue after reading the book um, and then seeing the ways. So in a sense, enacting this returning to the past and enacting this this looping back. Um, but the opening recounts a, a tragic event that seems unrelated to the main story, and, and that's of someone who is killed in a movie theater for tweeting too loudly. And here we have another nested situation in a way. It's sort of like two different technologies that represent two different eras, the cinema and, and uh, the cell phone. Um, and they each have their own culture and their own etiquette. And they're coming to blows uh, in the beginning of the book. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just speak to some thoughts on the on the prologue and and this this really strange event that um, that you decided to preface the novel with. 
Yeah, it's funny that that incident, it's funny too, because I was just in Tampa last week and that that incident happened in Tampa and um, and the the uh, quotes from the newspaper from the Tampa Bay Times. So it was funny to sort of see that and be like, oh, right. Um, yeah, that incident, which is, um, yeah, a man is actually texting his three-year-old daughter and someone gets annoyed in the theater and shoots him and kills him. Um, struck me, I mean, struck me at some point when I first heard it and then must have returned to me, um, for it's just utter unnecessary quality with lack, lack of what is just so, you know, it, it seemed nothing can be emblematic of, of the, the scope of violence that happens, um, and that we, and that we encounter all the time through technology, mostly, right, from our phones, that barrage, and um, and for which I don't think our brains are quite wired yet. So I think a lot of a lot of um, a lot of my questions about how to live are in some in some way related to what to do with that with that constant stream. Um, so that I don't, you know, it it's. I hadn't really, I mean, to be really frank, I hadn't thought about how it foregrounds technology and, and, um, and I love, I love that you point that out because I think the theater and going in person in either cinema or a theater or a concert, you know, going in person with other bodies to experience something in time, um, is, really important to me, um, not as sort of an attachment to an old thing, but also as a, as a, um, a really, a really necessary, um, just part of daily life. And so, but I hadn't, you know, I had never actually thought about how, how that is juxtaposed against the, um, the cell phone and texting in that scene. But yeah, clearly, clearly that's what I meant for it to <laughs> foreshadow. I think I was thinking more about just sort of picking one among all the random, just like totally, utterly upsetting and distressing, but also forgettable, you know, trying to recuperate like one of those forgettable, like violences and almost really picking one at random and just sticking with it almost as a, um, as a, as a gesture of how impossible it is to pick one that's emblematic. You know, I mm. kind of like picked that one and stuck with it. So I made it emblematic. <laughs> by, yeah. By yeah. Accident. <laughs> that was my back brain working. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier this, this thing, this thing prime you called that uh, Eleanor has, which is the way I, I think you, you most thumb your nose at the idea of, of progress in the book in the sense that Eleanor over and over again, brings up this idea of this terrible unnamed thing. And she was writing about it in the laptop that gets stolen. So um, thing number two is the loss of her laptop and the loss of the material that she's been working on. Um, and sh and a couple of the things that she says in the book are, I over and over again, she'll say things like, I thought of the thing that happened or the thing that I had made happen or at least not prevented from happening. And this periodic mention of the thing prime, the unnamed thing prime, sort of does what the film critic wants her to do in a sense. It's like the gap between the desire and the deliver delivery, um, but there is no delivery. Um, but before we talk about sort of the consequences of withholding for the reader, um, I was hoping you would read a couple pages. Sure. 
and and you're free to introduce or just read whatever you prefer to do. Okay, this whole section. Yeah, just two or four, two or five. I guess I'll just say that it's it's very close to the end of the book, um, and Eleanor has landed sort of temporarily, somewhat indefinitely, but def- but her visa will run out um, in the town of Harar in Ethiopia. And she's gotten a, a temporary job there. The next morning, she'll stop at the cafe on her way to work. Oh, sorry, and the cafe is an internet cafe. The next morning, she'll stop at the cafe on her way to work. She'll read about a boat carrying several hundred refugees that has capsized outside Lampedusa, close enough to shore that the cries of the drowning were audible from land. She'll read that the death toll of the migrants, most of them from Somalia and Eritrea, is rising into the hundreds. She won't read about the rapes these same migrants endured before dying so close to their destination, because these facts won't emerge for weeks or months, and the delay of these facts will be merciful, because Eleanor's stories of tolerance for the stream of intolerable events has shrunk. She will not cry for the refugees, her temporary neighbors, because the feeling produced by their fate will not be one of melancholia, though what it will be won't be easy to name. And she will read instead another item about the death from illness days after his release from decades in prison of a member of the Angola Three, and her response to this, too, will be subtly different from what she knew. She will note the difference, which she'll carry with her through her day at Betrimbo, through her solitary walk home via the flesh market, the spice market, and the chat market. She'll find herself periodically throughout the day succumbing to a sensation of being broken apart like a wishbone, followed immediately by a sensation of sliding on a freshly polished concrete floor. And she'll note the strange juxtaposition of these images and their lack of attachment to any direct memory or experience. And she'll note the discomfort and pleasure attending this lack. And when she arrives at her building and exchanges nods with her downstairs neighbor and climbs up the three flights of stairs, she'll open the door to an ordinary room containing an ordinary table and bed and an ordinary stove, and she'll walk to the stove and light it with a match to bring a luminously ordinary pot of water to life. Later, she'll walk up the hill to the brewery for shuro and beers with Maza and Tadesi. Listening to Anna Moskovakis read from Eleanor or the Rejection of the Progress of Love. This this section makes me think of again around the, the, the question of whether new technology is necessarily good for, for humans, the, the shifting from from the cinema to the the endless stream of violence, but also this evocation of the making of the boiling of the water, like an older technology, and then going and meeting friends, like you're talking about uh, being in the same room with with people. But it also made me think back to some more of the movie scene specifics in the prologue. And, And there are all things that I glossed over when I first read it. So it's a movie that was taking place about the Navy SEALs in Afghanistan, uh, and that the shooter was a retired police captain, and that someone sp- splattered in the blood of the now dead texter uh, was a war veteran, and another veteran says says he can't believe that someone would bring a gun into a movie theater. Um, and then I think about how the way Eleanor phrases her relationship to the to Thing Prime. She says, "I think about the thing that she, that." I had made happen or at least not prevented from happening. 
And that last part, the thing that I had not prevented from happening seems to implicate everybody in, in, in my mind to point at structural violence uh, that we participate in just by being alive, it, it, particularly as an American, uh, resource draining corporate capitalism, um, the wars that maintain our, mm-hmm. our quote unquote way of living. Um, so the way I read the beginning ultimately was that we share this thing prime with Eleanor um, that are unexplained, another unexplained thing in the book. Her unexplained bleeding thumb is the the blood on our hands. Um, in in the citation for your your James Laughlin Award, one of the things they mention about your poetry is that it deals with the painful experience of the complicity with injustice that comes with citizenship. So I guess I'm asking if, and I don't want to be reductive, but is, is that part of why of the function that thing prime is playing. And is that partly why it's unnameable because it's shared and collective? That was like a really, um, incredible thing for me to hear you say. Thank you. Um, just because, uh, I, I think you're giving me too much credit in some ways. Um, I do feel like the, the movement, if there's a movement of the book, it's very partial and it's incomplete and it is partly a movement from um, uh, personal grief to collective grief or or um, or just or just a collapsing a collapsing of those um, and so yeah of course the the thing in being unnamed becomes ideally shareable <laughs> um, and there are scenes in the book where Eleanor is very freely projecting onto other people wondering what their th- what their thing might be but it's still in the it's still in the sort of individual space of like each person having their own individual grief um, but of course the whole impulse like you're like you're saying is um, the whole underlying score like the music of the book is is that that is that no one is un, untouched by um, by the by the uh, by the structural <laughs> violences that um, that we all participate in and benefit from, or many of us benefit from. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's the the those are the thoughts I think all the time. I don't, and that and those are the discomforts that I dwell in all the time. And there's no, um, and I don't have any any sort of. Um, delusion that that I'll land in a relation to questions of individual grief, collective grief, um, let alone what to do about any of it. Um, but but I do think that it's it, but it's not strange to me that you would put those things together, um, given that that's where I was dwelling when I was writing. But I don't think I, for instance, I did not, I did not consciously think that the blood on the thumb is, is the blood on our hands, but I, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I made me, I mean, when I think about why Francis Bacon would have been starry eyed, I mean, there would be a lot of good reasons, like the invention of the printing press, uh, Copernicus and Galileo's astronomical discoveries. But then there's also the, uh, the invention of gunpowder and and then this this huge expansion in trade and then when you think about the discovery of the quote unquote 
quote, new worlds with these new technologies, mm-hmm. the question that gets begged is the progress for whom? Exactly. Because there's progress mm-hmm. for some, mm-hmm. um, which seems to be what you're pointing at mm-hmm. um, exactly. in the book. But also it sort of colors the 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 African immigrant who I suspect is really the thief, but who's acting like he's the friend of the thief who's stolen the laptop. Um, it just changes the whole reading of that um, of our it, once we move to the collective space. I know, mm-hmm. I know, you say you don't want to move no, into no, the yeah. bird's eye space, yeah, but yeah. it changes the the thing number two that mm-hmm. she's dealing with mm-hmm. if she's if she's truly aware of her thing prime. Yeah, um, say more because I'm trying to follow um, your. I mean, she's her re- her reaction to the email from the maybe thief um, is. Uh, in I mean, is actually really she's pretty generous. Well, I think she. I think she, I think there's a way, and I think I probably share this with Eleanor, um, of of trying to resist some of the some of the like um, complicit and inherited. Um, violence of encountering others with a sort of insistence on first taking things at face value. Right. So I think she, I don't think she would think that her take on that person is generous. I think she is like, well, why shouldn't I believe him? He's not actually asking me for anything really. He's offering something. (laughs) Everything that he Every, everything about their exchange makes sense if you do take him at face value. Um, why couldn't he be someone who is conflicted, who, you know, was handed a laptop and then realized, oh, I think this is stolen. And oof, if my laptop was stolen, I would be wondering about my data, you know, and then freaked out when it got too close or too, too you know, difficult. I mean, why, why couldn't that be real? So, um and she does, and it does spark, you know, and then she realizes she's projecting all these things onto this person. She has very little information about him. He gives her a few facts about his life, which may be lies or may be true. But again, she sort of is operating on this. What if I What if I just take it all at face value? Who could this person be? And that's how she gets interested in him. But ultimately, it is not a red herring, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's a fiction in her, you know. I mean, it's it, it's it's a fiction that she ends up acknowledging as a fiction in her own trajectory, um, and it is a mistake in that sense of mistaking this individual relationship that she starts to form with this person um, for something that can help her fix or address the relationship between her identity and the world, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's again like one of these mis mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I want to pivot to another thing about technology uh, with regards to, or tech, as Eleanor calls it, techno-convenience um, in relationship to authenticity and intimacy. Um, I love it when the film critic says that he's usually against third-person narratives, but in this case, it's okay um, because Eleanor has lost her laptop, and by losing her data, she's lost her eye, she's lost her identity, so it's fitting that it's told in, in the third person. But I, I feel like the book becomes this really interesting exploration of the ways our, our, our minds are 
referential regardless of technology. I think technology sort of ex exaggerates or amplifies some of it. But um, before we be talk about th that question, I, I, was, I marked out another section that I want you to read. She had received no reply from Danny K.M. The closer she got to letting go of thing number two, the more forcefully the thing that had happened before returned. When she tried on the dress in a shared dressing room beside strangers, it was there. When she walked in slow motion from her room to the bathroom, where the shower provided barely a trickle of warm water in the afternoons, it was there. When she rode the subway and regarded the faces across from her, she thought she saw evidence in each of them of a thing that had happened, that they had caused or not caused, and that could come back to crush them. She got caught staring, trying to imagine what the thing in each case might be. Often she saw, superimposed on one of the stranger's faces, an image from a Cassavetes film, she couldn't remember which one, in which a woman stares at her reflection, drunk, her made-up face maligned by tears, wailing from some unidentified pain unknowable even to her. What she didn't realize, but you may, is that she was confusing scenes and cineasts, that she had conflated the shot of the streaked makeup on the wailing woman from the party scene in Breakfast at Tiffany's with one of any number of scenes in Cassavetes's films. For instance, the dressing room scene from Opening Night in which Jenna Rowland's aging actress Myrtle witnesses her fragmentation in an array of mirrors. And what can be said about Abraham? Eleanor had very little to say about Abraham. During this time when she was back at work and preoccupied in a last-ditch effort to increase her effectiveness with helping her students revise their papers and prepare their final portfolios, she saw her lover only every third or fourth night. She was aware of what might look like a lack of intimacy in their proceedings. When they fucked, they didn't look at each other, they didn't talk. There was what you might call an instrumentality to the thing. But she rejected the theory, put forth by one of her male friends with whom she occasionally discussed her relationship, that her reliance on toys and props and non-mutual fantasy play was itself indicative of a suboptimal level of intimacy. She and her lover were not perfectly matched, she was the first to admit. He couldn't read her mind, and she didn't want to instruct. Often he did the right thing at the wrong time. But neither did she recognize a simple opposition between, to use the words of her theorizing friend, technology and authenticity. Even when pressed, she couldn't come up with meaningful de definitions for either term, the first becoming so broad it seemed to encompass almost everything, and the second so narrow it disappeared under the vaguest pressure. Whereas when Eleanor imagined superimposing the image of the distraught woman, not exactly an image but a complex pastiche, onto the faces of strangers, she felt certain that she was extending something real to them, which meant only something living, as authentic or inauthentic, as flesh-to-flesh -flesh contact, as placing her hands on theirs. She read The Left-Handed Woman. She read Don't Let Me Be Lonely and... Anna Patova crosses a bridge, which she immediately read again. She read Creature and The Pirate Who Does Not Know the Value of Pi. She read the first three chapters of Dawn. She fell asleep, content, her cheek resting on the page. What is the essence of really good sex, she read on her phone at the cafe when she should have been grading. Really good sex has no guilt or shame coming with it. Really good sex is not just about relief of tension or anxiety, but entails positive emotions such as love and emotional intimacy. 
Really good sex arouses feelings that last much longer than the span of the moment. The afterglow can last for hours or days. Really good sex is experienced at a much deeper level than sex that is casual. It has meaning because it is connected to important values. Really good sex is mutually enjoyable. It is not a one-way street. Each partner takes a selfish pleasure in both getting and receiving. She wondered if getting was a typo for giving or a Freudian slip, and then she wondered if the authors or algorithms responsible for articles like these were vulnerable to Freudian slips, and then she put down her phone. Time passed. Eleanor taught, walked, visited the library. She found a first edition of Maud Martha on the reference shelf and read it in an afternoon. One morning, she received a surprise package, a box of unsold sale items from an ex-roommate who'd moved to San Francisco to work at Good Vibrations. Time passed. Abraham, goggles, measuring tape, skill saw. They had sex using the Intima silk blindfold and the black ostrich feather. Time passed. Eleanor taught, walked, sat in the park with a friend. Abraham, hammer drill, router, glue. They had sex using the sidekick silicone anal plug and the nipple teasers vibrating nipple clamps. Eleanor's thoughts when she came flashed to Danny K.M. Time passed. Eleanor taught, walked, read the news on the internet. She read about protesters in Syria and upheaval in Athens. Abraham, cigarette, flirting, goggles. They had sex using the bound-to-please neoprene restraints and the naughty and nice plush paddle. With Velcro straps holding her ankles and wrists to the bed, Eleanor took the pleasure of both getting and receiving. The afterglow lasted for hours, lasted for days. We've been listening to Anna Moskovakis read from Eleanor or The Rejection of the Progress of Love. So it feels like this is one great scene that sort of raises the allure of the idea of unmediated engagement. And you re- there's many ways in which the book sort of counterbalances this this fear of of techno-convenient apparatus or apparati and um, referentiality with this allure for unmediated engagement. So you have this article, The Essence of Really Good Sex, which suggests that the sex that Eleanor is having with different technological and other devices is inferior. Um, and then you have a reference to My Dinner with Andre, which is a, basically a film that's a filmed conversation. So in a way, it's sort of working against some of the filmic aspects of film. Um, and you have the Walden films, uh, where Jonas Mikas tries to document his life as it's unfolding. And then maybe most predominantly Marina Abramovich with uh, the artist is present, who she simply or uh, seemingly simply sits for six to eight hours a day at the MoMA and and makes engaged eye contact with whoever wants to sit across from her. Um, And I'm wondering, I, I guess I wanted to talk about that opposition in here and whether it's a false opposition or not in your mind. I think the book describes itself. I don't know if the book describes itself or the film critic describes the book as a book with nested clauses where it's hard to find the verb. Um, but here, this these sorts of experiences seem to promise that you would be the verb, essentially. Like if you could be, if you could be with Marina Abramovich this way, or if you could have the essence of really good sex, you're no longer going to be in a in a nested 
sentence where you can't find the verb, you would be enacting and unified without any sense of, of reference. The, you, by you, you mean the general you? The one. person participating yeah. in it. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, um, first of all, it's the author who makes that judgment of the book about the nested clauses. And it's it's her anxiety in the beginning. Um, it's her reason for seeking uh, and accepting feedback, even though she rejects a lot of it, is, um, is, is sort of the anxiety around that idea. But she rejects most of the feedback, right? So I don't, I mean, I hope that it's clear that, that the, uh, that the um, posited um, uh, binary or, or, or opposition between technology and authenticity is a straw man and that the book is hopefully trying, I mean, trying to reveal it as such, right? Um, so, and, and, and that both of those terms are in distancing quotes. Um, well, when I think of like Eleanor, she loses her laptop. So yeah. she loses her eye. Yeah. Or ironically, she loses right. her, her eye. And she loses data. Yeah, <laughs> data her corporate data. Eye, yeah. And she goes on sort of an, in a way, an anti-capitalistic journey. Mm-hmm. She doesn't do, go on a journey with progress in mind. But she, it feels like what's motivating her are these uh, things that might promise a more unmediated connection. So the communal farm, experimentation with mushrooms, going to Ethiopia, um, it feels like that is counter in some way to some of the other things that are happening prior to her losing her laptop. It's so interesting. I'm thinking about like, first of all, it's funny to call her journey anti-capitalist, which in some in some ways it is, but also it's funded by credit card, right? So it also right. has this timeline. For sure. And, um, who, and who, how many people could actually take that journey? And how many people journey? could take that journey, right? She happens to have it to be unemployed in the summers anyway, um, or underemployed. Um, and have these gaps, but, um, I think the collapse of unmediated and authentic is common and wrong. Um, I don't know what authentic means, honestly, and I don't really know what unmediated means, (laughs) um, in terms of like, they both collapsed for me under pressure, but I think they are intended to mean very different things. And I think part, maybe maybe this is a way to address your question. I think Eleanor is looking for something that that can only be felt and not named. And these names are all really they approximate, they sort of triangulate, you know. Um there's there's multiple languages in the book and that's on purpose um because as a translator uh and I mean, I think most people have had this thought or are aware of this thought, but you know, the, the, sometimes the only way to get at something is, is with all the inadequate ways to get at it. Right. So. Well, it makes me think of the phrase that comes to her when she's tripping, mm, Yeah, which to me troubles the binary. Mm-hmm. So we are performance that is quality life. Try now. Right. So <laughs> right. that life is both a performance and, and quality and connected potentially right. simultaneously. And there's the verb, right? Try now, try right? Now. Maybe the yeah. verb is try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe the time is now. <laughs> but like one of my favorite scenes in the whole book is Eleanor takes out her vibrator, her pocket rocket, um, and is pleasuring herself framed in an open window 
with her computer open beside her as well, uh, with many windows open in her computer. So she's she's framed, and then there are frames within within the computer, and she's having technologically mediated arousal and um, possibly being viewed through the window with the opportunity to look through windows and her desktop if she wants. Um, but if you were to take all of those away, the the pocket rocket, the computer, and the window, and she was just simply fantasizing about Abraham or someone else, she'd still be in this other window in a way. like So mm-hmm. it seems to me that scene weirdly points to its opposite in the sense that there's something about the way the mind works that is has a virtuality to it that that even without the technology is i mean the technology is is a a never-ending now byproduct of making that more extreme totally and that you just connected like three things in my head and one of them is that the other thing in that scene is that there are a pile of books there's a pile of books next to her on the bed and um Maybe not. I mean, in that scene generally, um, and she's thinking about books as well. And there's a direct reference reference to Ulysses in that scene as well, or a hidden reference, and actually a, a line. Um, and so, the so I'm thinking about how, um, yes, there's there's the window of fantasy and narrative um, that is that is uh, maybe non linguistic. Um, or sometimes, sometimes, and sometimes not linguistic of sexual fantasy and um, and sort of what's going through one's head when one is having this supposedly singular, you know, um, experience, physical experience. Um, and there's everything you've ever read, and readings of technology, and everything you've ever um, heard someone say, and speaking is a technology, right? So, um, so all of that is, all of that is present. They're all. They're all windows that you can, you know, look, look through and be seen through, and um, and I think, but I think that the it just yeah, it just brings me back to the to this thing that I tried to say earlier, which was how um, fiction in particular, like I don't think it's an accident that the first novel that I finished and published has. Um, sex scenes and sex and then fantasies around around um having sex with oneself and with others multiple times recurring in the book because i do think that that the way the way um scenes that are depicted in any and and we're getting them all the time and we get them through books and we get them through the screen and we get little scenelets and we get you know memes and all kinds of things um uh are linked to fantasy um, in a way that that uh, expands beyond beyond sexual fantasy, but is um, but kind of but kind of is this is not a word look atable. <laughs> um, it is now very specifically uh, in that context, and so maybe I reached for it because it was the easiest way to introduce that that question. Yeah, does that make sense? That does. So this book is as people can probably tell from the little that you've read, is is brimming over with references. So we get Pina Bausch, Fassbender, Cassavetes, Knausgaard, Godard, O'Hara, Heidegger, Alice Notley, Claudia Rankin, Amina Kane, and, and so on. And you've written outside of this book about your own time in Ethiopia 
at a poetry reading that you gave there with some local Ethiopian poets and about your anxiety about reading your work in that context to the point where you, you went against your normal inclination not to preface your work and you prefaced your work. And, um, it had to do with this question of how many references it had. And then a question that came at you from, from the audience in Ethiopia. And I was just hoping maybe you could share that, that anxiety and then the experience and how, how that all landed. Um, well, first I'll talk about the referentiality. Um, I was talking about this with my parents, of all people. <laughs> my dad was saying how he had to look a lot of things up when he was reading the book. And and my dad is very connected to, to Google. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and I'm very aware that I, I would not publish a book, or I don't think I would have the impulse to do what I do in this book, which really is just drop in a ton of references without context. Um, I would not feel comfortable doing that in a world where um, where really the ubiquity of the ability to search, I mean, it's not total, but it is, I have been to lots of parts of the world and been struck by how much how much internet access, especially now that cell phones are so connected. Um, I was in the mountains, Berber mountains of Algeria last year visiting a friend and um, had better cell service there than I have in my home in the Catskill Mountains here, you know? <laughs> so the idea that any of these are accessible in a way now that they wouldn't have been um, is crucial for me to having included them. Um, that that question uh, when I was reading at the Goethe Institute in Addis Ababa with this uh, with some local poets came from the audience um, and turned into a really interesting conversation, which I won't try to reproduce because I won't remember enough. Um, but it had more to, I think in that case it had more to do with, I think I was used, I think at that time and in that work, the specific thing that I was reading, um, I actually felt like I was maybe, you know, using a kind of shorthand, um, not assuming everyone who was going to read the book or the poem would have read everything I've read or anything, but that there was a there was a way in which in which um, some of the references were um, necessary to I don't know yeah it was it was I was reading work in progress too and I think it helped me edit actually to go through that experience um, so yeah I mean I. I, I'm hearing in your question something about accessibility and about exclusion and about about sort of um, uh, referentiality as it can be sometimes deployed as a as a weapon of exclusion or like a sort of insidery kind of thing. Well, I, I don't did, know. That, I mean, that's not how I experienced it. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. 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 Well, but I. But, but I. But I could imagine lifting this yeah. book out and putting it in an entirely different literary yeah. tradition. I could understand why you might want to preface preference preface right. what you're reading. Right. Uh, for this for a different audience that may have far fewer of those references. Yeah, I mean, for, for this book, I think I would just say, if I were going to preface it somewhere, I would just say, you know, I name a lot of books and movies and things here and thinkers, and um, and I'm literally naming them to um, intro to sort of because they're all important either to me or to the character or one of the two main characters and they're there um 
as, it sounds so corny, as gifts. I mean, they're there as sort of like, um, not breadcrumbs, because it's not like you're going to learn more about the book. If you, It's more just like, go look at these things too. Like these are all, this is a collection of things. But sometimes I felt like you were naming people that you just loved. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I mean. And I want other people to. Yeah. You reread, you reread the Renee Gladman twice or your character does. And then then Nina Kane. And no, I mean, it's partly about, I mean, I was, I'm listening to on audiobook. I've been listening to Sarah Ahmed's living a feminist life. And she talks a lot about, um, she begins that book by saying that, 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 she chose to only cite women and she came from critical theory. And, and I think what's, what I'm finding super interesting about that particular book by her, I mean, I know her other work is that she narrates, um, a different, a parallel, but different experience to mine in that she actually, I think did embrace at a certain point being part of, um, being the, being the odd person out in a, in a more dominant kind of, um, I hope I'm not like misspeaking for Sarah Ahmed, but uh, but then she sort of realized and rejected and, and decided that she needed to make her own sort of canon. So anyway, so I think I mean I, I I'm listening to that now, and I obviously wrote this book before, but I was thinking about just sort of smuggling in, <laughs> and of course I didn't even know it was going to be published, so it wasn't necessarily like a like an ac- activist act, but smuggling in like just stuff I think people should read like kind of like if you like this book at all if you've read this far <laughs> here are some other things yeah and you know and the and the, the most um the most notable as- uh, um instance of that is at the very end and this was the very last thing that I figured out about the book was um that I include reference to a chapbook by my friend Laura Durback who is a Oakland poet Oakland-based poet um no one's going to see that chapbook. I mean, it's not even a chapbook. It was like a little handmade book that she, I don't know how many copies she made when I showed her the book and, and I, and I credit it at the end. And I, you know, she said, Oh my God, I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's but, the book with the robot, it, robot, robot hug from behind. It's so, it's so beautiful. And it came in exactly the right moment for me and for the book. Um, but you know, like putting that in there is a kind of a smuggling in of the, of the fact of the existence of, of that kind of book and that kind of exchange. And, um, and yeah, so it feels quite different from the kind of referenti- referentiality that would imply whether on purpose or by accident that, um, you're not getting something if you don't know the same things. Um, I hope it comes across as different from that. So, so when you mention um, Sarah Ahmed, yeah, um, it makes me want to ask about the role of gender. And you, you mentioned the role of gender around your experience around getting your philosophy degree. Mm-hmm. You've said that your favorite novels tell the stories of women who refuse, usually under duress, to feel essentially bad, unworthy, or wrong. And I'm interested in this quote in, in light of Eleanor because it feels like that that description of a woman who refuses to feel bad is an apt description of Eleanor, the character, ultimately. But the writer of Eleanor, who's also a character in the book, is in a really rotten situation. So the film critic Aiden sort of treats her like a personal assistant, uh, a confessor, and um, he's sharing unsolicited dark secrets about his personal life. and she says, he reveals himself as one of those men who delivers every opinion 
with an apparent authority and completion that I knew from experience I could muster only after substantial thought, the painful suppression of doubt, and hours of rehearsal before a mirror. So would we say that this writer is creating the character Eleanor of a novel that is of the type you love to read, but that the writer in Eleanor isn't isn't in that place? That makes sense, yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny, that line about... Um, about the characters uh, in the novels. That, that, that's a quote from the essay that I wrote, so it's from me um, saying that the novels that I love feature women who, who don't feel essentially bad or wrong. It's an essay that's also about shame, and, um, and I do end up revising that. I don't know if it's in the excerpt in the Paris Review that like, um, or the one that you're quoting that was online, um, but I end up revising that and realizing that, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm wrong. They do, they do feel shame. I found, I found some places where they feel shame. <laughs> but it was this sort of, I mean, that was an actual discovery that I, that I had that surprised me that like all these books that I brought with me um, to this, you know, place where I was writing this essay uh, were that at first glance or as I was going through them, I was like, wait, I was, I'm supposed to be writing about shame. And I brought all these books to help me write about it. And like, they're not about shame. How's that possible? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, and then I found some instances, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think Eleanor, the author character and I are each on a trajectory and we're at different places and we intersect at different times. And, um, and Eleanor's, there's a kind of, I mean, I think at some point in that same essay, I say that I, that I can't defend, I can't defend the character Eleanor at some point. Like there is, especially in the beginning of the novel or most of the novel, a kind of solipsism or a kind of self-involvement or a kind of, um, of um, wallowing that, uh, that feels... Um, like the ne like like the negative side of that of what would be implied by that lack of sensitivity of ever feeling wrong or something you know right. um of course she also was like super, super self-loathing but there's a kind of i mean yeah at the very beginning there's just this the description of this very uh, very thing like this description of of this cycle that she has where it's like you know the cycle of certain drain of you know like a whirlpool drain of anxiety where it's like i feel terrible i feel terrible for feeling terrible i feel really terrible for feeling terrible for feeling terrible <laughs> Right, um, which leads nowhere and, and means nothing. But, so, yeah. But, okay, so like when, when you talked about all the references that yeah. you drop in out of love, yeah. this is going to be a circuitous okay. uh, question, but they were great for me because I just ended up, you know, following each of them oh, to different places. <laughs> but the, I'm going to follow one of them yeah. in a way that isn't intended. But okay. the go, you mentioned... Godard's Goodbye, oh, to, Goodbye to Language, yeah. which is his 3D film that yeah. was filmed on two different cell phones. So here he's, yeah. in, in his late films, he's been in, interrogating um, what wh how film is being filmed yeah. in addition to um, everything else that he, he does in his strange mind. But you, I think part of what you're commenting on is is in, in that section with Goodbye to Language is the film is a 3D film. It's filmed on two cell phones, but it's being bit torrented in its 2D version in an airport. And mm -hmm. so like, are you really experiencing the art as it 
is are you experiencing the authentic version of mm-hmm. the art? But then again, he's he's sort of interrogating what the authentic version of art would be in the art itself. But the thing that that I that it led me to was a, a review by A.O. Scott, hmm. where he talked about how Susan Sontag champion champion him um, fifty years ago, and that this was a sort of Godard's uh, homage back to Sontag. Uh, pushing against critics who were always looking for meaning and meaning making rather than focusing on what she called the erotics of art. And that's where I'm coming back to mm. the, I don't know if this is a gendered question or mm-hmm. not really, but, but the question of Eleanor versus Eleanor's writer and not feeling bad, it did feel like when she left her laptop and she sort of goes on an associative journey across the globe, that it was not about meaning making as much as it was about the erotics of art Hmm. or the erotics of life Mm -hmm. i guess Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that she wasn't Mm -hmm. like the meaning making was that uh koan from her mushroom Mm -hmm. trip essentially which is not collapsible Mm -hmm. well now that you say the word meaning i'm thinking about the hillary putnam um the twin earth thought experiment that eleanor brings up um, and dwells on for a minute and uh, the meaning of meaning is the name of the of the the title of the piece that talks about that. Um, and maybe maybe meaning is always in double in distancing quotes throughout whether or not it's present as a word in the, in the book. Um, whereas erotics is is very much just there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but is it really? Yeah. I mean, when we push on that, I, yeah. Because when we were talking earlier yeah. about does unmediated even yeah. exist? Yeah, I mean, uh, what what is erotics? <laughs> oh, and there's also like there's the right, there's the the autocorrect which comes up in the book, including early on um, that uh, the author character decides she's writing partly about the erotics of conversation, and it gets changed to the erotica of conversation. Um, yeah, I don't know. Desire is definitely desire is maybe easier to talk about than erotics. Um, for me, because um, not that it's easy to talk about, but uh, but you know, I think Eleanor's desire, sort of quasi desire, that forms and constellates a little bit around this person, Danny Cam, who reaches out to her after finding himself using her laptop, is at that point in her life in her experience, in her day, um, is actually the most meaningful thing. It's the, it's the thing she wants to figure out, right? Is like, what is, what is this gesture of apparent, this apparent, but dubious, (laughs) um, gesture of in some way, unmediated generosity, if it's true, because, Mm -hmm. because in a, in a sense of like, there's no, strategy that could explain it or there's no kind of like um there's no kind of like ulterior motive that could explain it so there's a kind of you know maybe that's maybe that's um maybe the non-instrumentality uh, maybe a non-instrumental relation between two people is the is the is the closest thing to what the shorthand of authenticity or yeah. mediated anything is and so she's looking for that and she finds it sometimes and she finds it in different places, unexpected places, and often non-erotic places, non-explicitly erotic places. Um, and yet there's an erotic charge to 
to any glimpse of yeah. of that non-instrumental um, uh, fusion in time for a second with another. Well, it feels like the ending, formally speaking, sort of gestures towards something hopeful in this regard to me. The, the ending is an interweaving or an interbraiding of the stories. The writer and the character, the signifier and the thing feel like they come together. And this is even true in the art that you referenced near the end. So I don't think you, I don't even know if you explicitly say this about the Godard film, but in the movie itself, at one point, the, the two images separate and then come back together. And apparently it can. The, there was a gasp in the audience when this happens. Um, so um, the two cell phone images that create the 3D image become separate images and then come back into three-dimensionality. And then you also have um, Alfred Leslie's uh, killing cycle that he created after the fire destroyed his studio and home and just after the death of Frank O'Hara on the beach. And that also synthesizes fact and fiction mm-hmm. and unifies them as the book seems to be trying to do at the end. Um, at least for me, it felt like there was a hopefulness in this gesture a- and the, a subtext that perhaps art can make a difference in the world of endless uh, timeline horror um, and that each of our thing primes doesn't have to ultimately be the undoing of each person. But it, it, it brings me to your, your thoughts on art in light of a quote you have on utopias. Uh, so your website is called Bad Utopian. And in it, you say, sometimes you are a good utopian and sometimes a bad one. Um, tell us tell us about this relationship between being an artist who's sometimes a good utopian and sometimes a bad utopian. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. There was, there was so much there. One thing I just want to insert about uh, the Alfred Leslie that I just thought now, again, like this wasn't in my front brain, um, is that that's is that that piece that exhibit is also um, an instance of somebody going back and revising their work because he actually went back and added more paintings and added captions um, many years after the you know the mm-hmm. thing had been so there's something about the mistake the stumbling the revision um, the non the non-reduction um, and non-settling of of any m- movement that that maybe is maybe is is also the, the the hopefulness in some way right like that um that these things that seem calcified and finished and released can be sort of like drawn back into the state of of work and of um of collaboration and dialogue and then re-released and drawn back so i mean that's sort of one of the, the art pieces the bad utopian good utopian thing comes directly from um from uh uh, an essay on translation called the, the Misery and the Splendor of Translation by Ortega y Gasset. And I read it a long time ago when I was studying translation theory. Um, and I was just obsessed with it. And I kind of would rather read his, <laughs> his, do you have his, uh, his thing there? Do you want to read it? Can I? If you want to. Um, it's too long maybe, but, um, but I think I need to read it because I don't want to get it wrong. And I do have a, I do have an idea about, about how I'm like half a good utopian and half a bad utopian. Okay. We probably also all Let's are. Let's do it. Okay. So he writes, this is in 1937. There is a false utopianism that is the exact inverse of the one I am now destru- describing. A utopianism consistent in its belief that what man desires, projects, and proposes is obviously possible. Nothing is more repugnant to me, for I see this false utopianism as the major cause of all the misfortunes taking place now on this planet. 
In this humble matter in which we are now engaged, we can appreciate the opposing meanings of the two utopianisms. Both the bad and the good utopians consider it desirable to correct the natural reality that places men within the confines of diverse languages and impedes communication between them. The bad utopian thinks that because it is desirable, it is possible. Believing it to be easy is just moving one step further. With such an attitude, he won't give much thought to the question of how one must translate, and without further ado, he will begin the task. This is the reason why almost all translations done until now are bad ones. The good utopian, on the other hand, thinks that because it would be desirable to free men from the divisions imposed by languages, there is little probability that it can be attained. Therefore, it can only be achieved to an approximate measure. But this approximation can be greater or lesser to an infinite degree, and the efforts at execution are not limited, for there always exists the possibility of bettering, refining, perfecting, quote, progress, in short. All human existence consists of activities of this type. I had totally forgotten the word progress was in there, too. So um, I think what struck me the most about that was just this this sense of, like, of like, are yeah, are you are you trying to push forward against against what you know to be all odds, or or are you sort of pushing forward with a false confidence that like that your will will make it so, whatever whatever it is that you're trying to fix, and um, and I think that the I think what I was thinking when I sort of named my website that and 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 pulled this quote out of its translation context and into the more general context was that. I do think that when, um, in order to write anything and think that anybody might get anything out of it, I think that I, and probably not everybody, but I have to temporarily inhabit the bad utopians space. Temporarily. It has to be temporary, but it has to happen where for a minute um, you actually think you're you're doing something that you're making, um, making something, um, that hasn't been made before, not in terms of originality, but just, you know, just, just, yeah, just that that you're actually, um, doing something, (laughs) uh, that could matter. And, um, and then I think you have to, you then, then I think you pull back from that and you become the good utopian and think about, uh, you know, well, given that, you know, give, given that the, the massive limitations against ever doing anything or having any effect, then like, what, what are we doing here? And is it, is it worth it to keep going uh, or to release this into the world or whatever? You know, it's just a different kind of thing. And, and I think it's interesting that he sees these as, I mean, he's so strident. All, transla- all translation theory is bullshit in some way. I mean, I love reading it, but it's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's like there's what I love about translating is it is, it is totally impossible. And it's, and it's also just kind of redundant to say that it's impossible and because it's impossible it's possible you know and it's like you can just kind of keep talking (laughs) forever but um but he sees them as oppositional and I see them as I see those two stances as uh as a flickering um that is necessary to live um and and also what makes it difficult (laughs) can before we end could you talk about your next project participation Oh sure, yeah. Well, the funny thing is that I abandoned that project, uh, or didn't abandon it. I set it aside, and I'm re- and I'm writing a different project um, now. But participation, yeah, was uh, it, I might return to it, um, and 
And, you know, actually, I did have the thought recently that maybe this thing I'm writing now instead is going to end up with that title and that that other thing will really go to bed, <laughs> which is very possible. Um, so what I'm what I'm writing now is um, a little bit tongue in cheek and it's a little bit it's less narrative than this. It is sort of prose with some poetry um, and some essay elements. And it's uh, it's based it's it's about love. Um specifically and directly and um and anti-love and it kind of toggles between <laughs> between love oh. and anti-love and it's also brings in all it has it has syllabi it involves two reading groups actually um sort of phantom reading groups and uh and it talks um about uh about tongue in a tongue-in-cheek way about a revolutionary feminism reading group that um that gets reduced in certain people's minds to an anti-love group an anti-romantic love group and then another group that's a uh, that's trying to actually um think about love and its possibilities so it kind of goes back and forth between those things but again as with this one i mean we always write the same thing right um it also has to do with personal and civic love or personal and communal um, love and and uh, and you know there's that Cornell West quote that justice is what is it justice is um, justice is love in public something like it's I, now I'm forgetting the exact words um, it it has to, it sort of revolves around that too yeah. maybe it should be called participation though <laughs> I like that title yeah I mean I don't yeah. have a title for the new thing so <laughs> it would be a very short title for you it would be so short. <laughs> I think if I if I go away from the ten or more word titles, I'll have to go. I'll have to go to a, um, a one, one word. word title. Yes. Well, it was great having you on the show today, Anna. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be here. We were talking today to Anna Moskovakis about her latest book from Coffeehouse Press, Eleanor, or the Rejection of the Progress of Love. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Anna Moskovakis' work can be found at badutopian.com. And Anna will be adding a reading of and discussion of her work, Flat White, to the Patreon bonus audio archive. This project began as a straight translation of the work of the Algerian poet and translator Samira Negrouche, but it morphed into something stranger, something that in its strangeness points at the strangeness of any translation endeavor. It consists of Anna Moskovakis' often corrupt translations of Negrouche's 20-part poem interspersed with 20 interjections, letters to Samira about the poem itself, and the act of translation. This joins readings by Carmen Maria Machado, Vicky Now, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Labrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Labrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.